Hey everybody, how are we all doing? I'm Michael. I'm joined by Alex as always. How's it going? And this is Fallen Through Plot Holes, a podcast about video game plot lines and how they have a tendency to go off the rails. And this is part two of what's going to be four parts about the game and just all the nonsense surrounding it of Final Fantasy VII. Uh, so if you want to check out part one first, you certainly can. Uh, it might be necessary. It might not. You may want to just hear about all the dumb novels that we're going to be talking about today. In which case, welcome. Welcome to part two. You, yeah. You've made a oh choice. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, Alex, that's um, that's primarily what we're going to be talking about today is that we're going to be talking about something called a compilation of Final Fantasy seven. Mm -hmm. A compilation that you would think would just consist of, say, a few games and whatnot, but no, Square decided to go all out and... Oh, oh boy, did they. Oh yeah, do a whole bunch of nonsense. <laughs> and we're literally going to be spending the next two parts talking about that in its entirety. Because it turns out there's just a lot to it. A lot more than I even realized before I actually got started on part two. Yeah, there were there were definitely parts of this that I missed out on, and I was paying attention to it at the time. Yeah, yeah. It, there's just so much of it. And as I discovered, the compilation of Final Fantasy VII actually never ended. Mm, yeah, yeah, that, that sounds right. Yeah. And once I learned that, I was like, oh, well, I'm going to be in for a bad time now, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> see square really crossed this threshold where at one point they were all about like the next thing and mm -hmm. the new thing and let's try a different thing now and then i think you said it was very much inspired by 10 where they went what if we go back to the old things and keep doing the old things yeah exactly exactly yeah no you're totally not wrong about that the um one of the things that we're going to do to start this whole thing off is actually talk about that change that happened where Square went from being like, okay, we're just going to focus on the next thing to being like, okay, well, how can we just maximize our revenue from all of these different projects that we're doing? Mm -hmm. Because as it turns yeah. out, games have started to get expensive to make. And now we have these just potential franchises that are just like, we're just leaving money on the table. Like they just totally ended up realizing that after a certain point. Well, they ended up believing that after a certain point. Hmm. Indeed, uh, indeed. <laughs> and I think it's time that we went ahead and talked about that a little bit, because before we can actually talk about the compilation of Final Fantasy VII, uh, we had to just kind of go back and talk about Final Fantasy as a whole and where it mm -hmm. was after the release of Final Fantasy VII. So Final Fantasy VII ended up coming out and, of course, was the massive hit that we talked about last time. You know, sold millions upon millions of copies, but Square on the map as far as not only like a major RPG developer, but also just a major video game developer as a whole, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. One that just kind of transcended, you know, the games that they were making uh, for not only, you know, Japan, but for the rest of the world as well. Uh, you put the PlayStation on the map and it just made it made the JRPG something that was super, super cool. And so with that, they, they had this like incredible success on their hands. Now, 
most companies around this time would do anything possible they could to capitalize on that success. And to be fair, Square is going to do so, but in a way that Square had always done with their Final Fantasy games in the first place. You see, Final Fantasy games, as it turns out, aren't direct sequels to one another. They're mm -hmm. part of a line of games, certainly, that will share common elements, common battle mechanics, uh, character designs, certain motifs that are present all throughout those games. Uh, but for the most part, each game is going to be separate and bespoke from one another. Uh, Final Fantasy VI, for instance, is not a sequel to Final Fantasy V in terms of story. It is its own separate thing, and, and in fact has a wildly different tone compared to the previous game. And for Final Fantasy VIII, that's going to be more or less the same. It's mm -hmm. going to share a similar tone, and it's clear that they were going to see some we're going to see some inspiration from Final Fantasy VII bleed all over. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is look at the protagonist's name of Squall <laughs> Leonhardt to realize that oh, you were influenced by Cloud Strife. Right. They definitely had FF Seven on their minds as they were making FF Eight. They certainly were. And, like, we could go on and on about the similarities the two games have. Like, they were clearly influenced by the love story that was present in Final Fantasy VII that, even though it wasn't front and center in the story itself, was definitely front mm. and center in the minds of fans. So they made it a central port, part of Final Fantasy VIII. The modern setting got brought forward into an even more modern setting in Final Fantasy VIII. Right. Uh, even the gun, or not the gun, <laughs> the sword, the gun blade, right. as it's called. Uh, is a weird sort of thing that just like the Buster Sword kind of was. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it still was its own bespoke thing. And while Final Fantasy VIII did sell very well, it sold something like, I think, over the course of its lifespan, somewhere around uh, like six and a half million copies by about 2001 or so. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't quite the mega success that Final Fantasy VII was. Uh, with Final Fantasy IX, it was going to be much the same thing. Now, Final Fantasy IX is going to take a bunch of different tact from everything else, that being more right. of a celebration of Final Fantasy in particular. But while that game was critically well-received, it also ended up selling quite a bit less. I believe roughly about 5 million copies by 2004, I believe. Mm -hmm. My point being is that there's a definite downtrend in the sales uh, from Final Fantasy VII as... Fans like myself, I, I remember getting Final Fantasy and being like, oh, what's what's going to be ne like Cloud's next adventure and seeing that right. there's nothing going on there. Uh, you know, started to maybe drift a little bit away from the franchise. Uh -huh. But a couple events are going to happen that's going to put the focus back on Final Fantasy VII. And both are stuff that we've actually talked about on this podcast before. Now, the first thing that we're going to end up talking about is probably one of square's darkest moments yeah and by darkest i mean uh nearly killing the company for the third time oh something like that yeah the secret to square is that they try to kill themselves every i don't know five years or so something around that yeah at least once a decade Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, more often than they really should and somehow yeah. get away with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, if you want to find that one, that's episode 20, where we talk about a little movie called Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. Now, to give you just a quick Cliff's Notes on that, it was an incredibly ambitious project that was started shortly after the apparent success of Final Fantasy VII uh, as a 3D animated movie that was going to be as real and lifelike as something you would see on the big screen with real actors and whatnot. Uh, 
It was an incredibly expensive movie. It was the second most expensive movie upon release in 2001, just behind the Ben Affleck film Pearl Harbor. And it unfortunately did not earn a whole lot of money. It's considered to be one of the biggest box office flops to ever exist. And it basically jeopardized Square as a whole. It led to Hironobu Sakaguchi, the creator of Final Fantasy, to eventually end up retiring from the company. And it also jeopardized Square's uh, recent talks with their rivals Enix, creators of the Dragon Quest series, among others, for a possible merger that would make them the preeminent powerhouse in Japan when it came to RPGs, if not just game development as a whole. With that, Square was in a lot of difficulty, and they needed something to bail them out. Thankfully, the same year that Spirits Within came out, a little game called Final Fantasy X hit store shelves. A game that we covered in our very first episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> An episode I've been dreading to listen to again, because I'm sure <laughs> it's rough. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure. But in it, we do talk about how a little bit of development and like what kind of went into it and what made it such a success. But once again, to give the cliffs notes on that one, Final Fantasy X was a game that was not expected to reach anywhere near the level of success that it had. One, because of the PlayStation 2 had just come out not that long before Final Fantasy X did as well, uh, came out in the year 2000. And just the general downtrend of, of Final Fantasy and just to, just in general, just like the fact that they just didn't really have a whole lot of confidence that there was going to be a mega hit. They figured it was going to be a success, but not like a huge mega hit in Final Fantasy X. It basically caught them by surprise when Final Fantasy X ended up selling a ton of copies and became a legitimate system seller as well, much in the way mm-hmm. that Final Fantasy VII did. Uh, by, I believe, 2004, Final Fantasy X is going to sell 6.6 million copies, which, once again, doesn't quite get to the level of Final Fantasy VII, but given that it is for a system that had just been barely out for a year before its release, so not really a huge install base, and games were just starting to get a little bit more expensive compared mm-hmm. to how they were the previous generation, that is still a monumental success. Yeah. Now, with this, Square realized that they have a potential mega franchise on their hands within their own mega franchise. And so they immediately commissioned work on a sequel to the game. First starting with a animated movie, uh, that uses the game engine and whatnot um, called The Eternal Calm, that once it was very clear that people were wanting some more Final Fantasy X content, they then hastily developed the rather light and experimental Final Fantasy X II, released in 2003. A game that, while it didn't release, reach the heights of Final Fantasy X, did sell 3 million copies for a game that was probably about a fraction of the cost of Final Fantasy X to develop. Right. And with this, Final Fantasy X enters what I think is a kind of underrated aspect that uh, people don't really pay attention to. It is maybe sneakily one of the most influential games Square has ever made. Mm, mm -hmm. Because past Final Fantasy X, every Final Fantasy game that's going to be released, with the exception of the massive multiplayer online game Final Fantasy XI, and I guess Final Fantasy XIV as well, if we're going to include that in there. Right they're all going to have some sort of sequel in there or spin-off game, including right. things like Final Fantasy XII, which XII was not exactly a massive hit, but still ended up having two spin-off games somehow. Mm, yeah. Oh, it sure did, didn't it? It sure did. 
And with that, Square realized that if Final Fantasy X could be this successful, then why couldn't other games in their back catalog also reach this level of success? Now, one thing about Final Fantasy X's um, kind of media proliferation, if you want to call it that, was that it just sort of happened very organically. They went, oh, this right. is a success. Okay, let's do something else with it. Right. What they're going to do past this is that it's all going to be very much planned. Right. And it's going to start when they decide, well, if we can do this with Final Fantasy X, why can't we do this with Final Fantasy VII? And thus, the compilation of Final Fantasy VII is born. Alex, do you have much experience with the compilation? So, not a ton. Um, the My familiarity is mostly with what I'm going to call, I guess, the core compilation, mm -hmm. uh, which is the the titles that receives the compilation's naming scheme. Mm -hmm. Uh, that being Advent Children, Before Crisis, Crisis Core, Dirge of Cerberus, i.e. AC, BC, CC, DC. Mm -hmm. um, of those, I watched Advent Children when it came out, which is like the sequel movie that we'll be talking about. I played a bit of Crisis Core, which is the prequel game released on Sony's PSP. Mm -hmm. And... That is about it until Remake comes along. Yeah, and that's roughly about where I sit as well. Uh, I watched a little bit of Advent Children, and by a little bit I mean the Cloud vs. Sephiroth fight and right. the commons of the university I went to because somebody just had <clears throat> it on a big screen. Yeah, as you do in the mid-2000s. Yeah, and I played a little bit of Dirge of Cerberus as well and went, this is a bad video game. Yeah, that, that was the impression that I got, and I decided not to play it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, as, you, as, as um, Alex just alluded to, there's a lot to the compilation of Final Fantasy VII. Uh, so with it, we're going to get not, not just one, not just two, not just three, and in fact, not just four, we're actually going to get five games out of this entire thing. Uh, those, of course, being, you know, before Crisis, Crisis Core, Church of Cerberus, the upcoming Final Fantasy VII Ever Crisis, which is scheduled to be released this year, oddly enough, and Final Fantasy VII, The First Soldier, the one game that does not follow the really dumb naming convention that they decided to go with. You know what the worst part about that is? What's that? They could have called it First Class. They could have. They could have done it. They could have done it. And they, <laughs> they did should. It should be called First Class. It should I don't be. know why it's not called First Class. I don't know either. I don't know either. I have to assume that name is copyrighted by, I don't know, X-Men or something. I actually would they, just, they just couldn't. I actually would legit would not be surprised if that was the case. <laughs> that actually, that makes way too much sense. Yeah. So yeah. They decided to release all these games. Uh, with the first wave coming between 2004 to 2007, then they ended up taking a bit of a break for about 13 years or so. <laughs> After, spoiler, it didn't go over super well. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't go so great. Basically, Dirt the Servers came out, everyone went, oh boy. Oh. And then even though Crisis Core was well-received, everyone was like, nah, we're kind of cool. Yeah. 
But yeah, so they ended up releasing all all of this media out there to explain not only what happens after Final Fantasy VII, but what happens before as well, to kind of just fill in the entire world. Now, that by itself is a lot of content to cover, but unfortunately, Square really wanted to go all out with this. So they also released three different films or original video animations. Uh, the original film, Final Fantasy VII Advent Children, probably the most famous of all the compilation mm-hmm. of Final Fantasy VII media. Last Order, Final Fantasy VII. And Case of Denzel from On the Way to a Smile, which, by the way, On the Way to a Smile is a collection of short stories basically written from the perspectives of the different characters in the Final Fantasy VII universe, three of which were released within the, the first initial batch of media. The Case of Denzel, which, don't worry, we're going to be talking about Denzel and how much of a nothing burger he is. Uh, Case of Tifa and Case of Barrett. Now, after these all actually went over shockingly well, in 2009, with the release of Final Fantasy VII Advent Children Complete, a remastered version of the original Final Fantasy VII Advent Children movie, they then released a lot more of these short stories that we won't be covering today because we just have so much to cover already. But uh, they released five more, including um, Case of Red 13, Case of Yuffie, Case of Shinra, and my favorite that I can't wait to read, Case of Lifestream? Oh, boy. Oh, boy, indeed. Now, with that, I thought actually I was like kind of done with all the different little bits of media, but it turns out there's actually one more really dumb novel that I'm going to actually have to read at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's called Final Fantasy VII, The Kids Are All Right. <laughs> oh, God. A novel that explains the backstory of the villains as well as some other surrounding events of Final Fantasy VII Advent Children that at first I was going to totally skip until I realized it contains characters that are relevant to only that novel and Final Fantasy VII Remake. Right, and that sort of gets us to our core problem of this whole endeavor, which is, if I'm being honest, the idea of releasing short stories and novels in the Final Fantasy VII universe doesn't sound that bad. No. It, it kind of harkens back to when Star Wars had its extended universe and, you know, all the stories that went on before and after the original trilogy. And it's like, it's an interesting enough universe with likable and fun characters that, sure, just write some stories about what's going on with them, what what what's going on inside their heads you know we can spend more time with them we can explore different aspects of things it's a good framework for like you know small stories to happen Mm -hmm. but square needs to maintain this as this grandiose juggernaut of cultural significance Mm -hmm. that fall fantasy 7 originally was and it has the same problem that literally every other time they do this has which is that the game was not written or designed to be that. The game is its own story. It is self-contained. And trying to make it more than that is just building on top of a complete thing that has no interfaces to add more. Yeah, and in the case of Final Fantasy VII, in the case of like when stories try to do this at large, like I don't think it's an impossible task to do. I think there's definitely been some 
extra media that's been created around something that's been a complete a complete project that's actually been pretty good like mm. going back to star wars there's a lot of stuff that surrounds all like the original trilogy and whatnot that's actually pretty darn good right uh that being said it's very very difficult because like while i while i will actually defend a lot of aspects of final fantasy 10 2 at the very least there's things that you could have done with the ending of final fantasy 10 and move forward from that mm-hmm. final fantasy 7 ends with did humanity survive it's up to you to interpret whether they did or didn't right <laughs> and then they they immediately go no they totally did and in fact they, the they world's did. basically the same yeah <laughs> and yeah i got it's because of that i i don't i don't really think it works a whole i don't think anything that they do with this with the exception of stuff that happens before final fantasy 7 works at all anything that happens after the ending of final fantasy 7 i think is kind of bad whereas mm. like the prequel stuff like crisis core oddly enough i think at least works on some level mm. i to an extent we'll, they work yeah. better they work better better yeah um we'll we'll probably have that debate when we get to crisis core because <laughs> oh boy do i have thoughts about just prequels in general yeah and uh i don't blame you on that because boy do i have some thoughts on that as well <laughs> yeah but i think with that we probably should actually start talking about some of this uh some of this compilation of Final Fantasy VII stuff, because today we're going to basically be talking about none of the games. We're just mm. going to be talking about all the different uh, video animations and uh, movies and uh, written media that's going to be around this. Uh, right. Though, once again, not all of it, because apparently Kazushige Nojima is my mortal enemy. and <laughs> <laughs> decided yeah. in 2011... <laughs> specifically despite me a person he has never met <laughs> he's gonna write a, st- a stupid novel that i have to read now that i'm sure I'm yeah gonna hate. <laughs> they they keep hiring him to do that they keep doing that it's it's great i love it so we're gonna so, st- go ahead. actually before we jump into that um i would like to circle back on something we actually discussed last time sure. briefly um because it ties into what is personally sort of my one of my biggest interest points in this and something that ultimately paints how I feel about the whole endeavor, depending on how they handle it, which is, I, you know, I mentioned last time that probably my favorite aspect about Final Fantasy seven is the nature of Sephiroth and Genova and how the villain that you think you're fighting is not the real threat or Mm -hmm. is, you know, shown to be a side of a larger threat. Yeah. Um, that said, there were, there were some questions I had that I was not clearly remembering things or I wanted to follow up on it. And so I, I looked into, uh, Genova. Mm-hmm. So what I'm, what I'm looking at comes from the Final Fantasy fandom wiki on Genova and Final Fantasy VII. Um, and there's a couple interesting things I thought. Uh, first of all, you were correct that in the game, uh, the entity Genova is an alien that fell from the sky during the time of the Cetra, mm-hmm. was sealed away in the northern crater, and then ultimately re-unleashed by Shinra during an expedition. Mm. Um, so the, the entity that you see is the original Genova. Um, there are details that come from Final Fantasy VII Ultimania Omega, which is a compilation of 
uh, artworks, interviews with the developers, basically a, a fan book released sometime mm-hmm. after Final Fantasy VII. Yeah, something is often done for a lot of Square's releases, yeah. Mm-hmm. So one of the things they do talk about is that in the original concept of the game, or the game's early playing stages, uh, quote, Genova wasn't an extraterrestrial being, but rather a certain region of the human brain or genes. The name Genova was supposed to have originated hmm. from a book written by the Cetra. The element Genova wasn't meant to, to surface under normal conditions, but rarely people were born in whom Genova awakened naturally. Huh. Uh, the Genova element could have been awakened through artificial means by exposing a person to Mako energy. Uh, individuals who could wield Genova would be known as thaumaturges. Uh, thaumaturge avail- ab- uh, abilities varied, but they were shared a common ability to be drawn and sense one another. Um, so these these could be those who in whom Genova awakened naturally, like Aerith, or was artificially induced, like Sephiroth. Hmm. Um, obviously, that's not super important, but it does sort of highlight that in the original plan of the game Sephiroth was clearly intended to be the primary antagonist yeah um, which sort of maybe helps explain why a lot of the story points to him being the primary threat even as he is shown to be you know following the will of mother of Genova mm-hmm. um, furthermore again like the entity Genova descended from space but it's unclear um it what exactly that thing is if that is sort of the origin of genova as this idea or if it is perhaps uh you know a another host if you will similar to sephiroth um especially looking at you know the way that sephiroth ultimately transforms as the game proceeds uh losing his the lower half of his body, much the way that Genova is missing any legs of a humanoid sort below mm-hmm. its waist and is instead replaced by this weird heart-like organ. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. Genova is like really weird like that. And first off, appreciate, appreciate the lo- doing the research on that. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, I definitely did not know about the original plan of Genova. Because... Um, mm-hmm. That would have been an interesting idea to go with. I guess just to comment on that really right. quickly to like make it just be like, oh, there's there's a little Genova in all of us. If, mm-hmm. And it can come out depending on like certain environmental conditions and whatnot. Right. For Sephiroth's like shape-shifting and whatnot, it turns out Genova does have the ability to just straight up impersonate other people. Mm-hmm. And like impersonate other objects, which is something you see all throughout like Final Fantasy VII. Like... You know, she impersonates one of your team members to get the black materia, or like right. a piece of Genova can just morph into a giant Genova that's not actually right. Genova. So maybe that's something that went on with Sephiroth as well. Sephiroth being, as we'll find out, the one who actually was in control of Genova this entire time. So perhaps got right. the ability to morph himself into the weird things that he would later morph himself into. Right. Um, and just real quickly, it also the article also mentions that um, so in as we covered sort of last time, uh, a lot of the Genovas you're fighting are these black capes that you find wandering around. It seems like you know people shrouded in black that occasionally will either turn into Sephiroth or weird tentacle blobs mm-hmm. that attack you. Um, 
The article mentions that it has been suggested from the material present in Ultimania Omega that rather than there being several black capes, there that was just one, Genova, who was cutting off bits of its body as it journeyed towards Sephiroth until all that remains is a heart, hmm. which is metal. Yeah, metal is health. <laughs> and in the original version, the party would catch up to the black cape in the whirlwind maze, and the figure would remove its hood to show that it had no face, then take off its cloak to show there was nothing but Genova's heart floating in midair, the final piece which would then transform into a monster. So it's this it's really interesting to me because this there's a lot of ambiguity about what Genova is and how it works and what exactly Sephiroth's part in all this is. Mm-hmm. And it does very much seem like Sephiroth's will, such as it is in its insanity, is the driving force for much of the game. Yeah. Um, which to me seems a little weird, especially when you when you listen to talk to Sephiroth constantly talking about Genova with the sort of reverence as his mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you think about Genova as this ultimate life form, you know, the idea that it would submit its will to another individual. But if, if Genova itself is also a host to this thing, this parasite, this disease, it sort of makes sense because Genova and Sephiroth then are basically interchangeable. They are both nothing but hosts to this cosmic disease. Mm -hmm. And its guiding principle seems to be to find the strongest host, accumulate as many victims as it can to consolidate its power, and then consume the power of the planet before moving on to another one. Yeah, and ultimately, you can see that how like elements of that would end up carrying over to the final game and whatnot, because yeah, Genova's whole thing of like... And it, like later, Sephiroth, as we'll find out, his whole thing is like drain planet, move on, mm-hmm. use planet to travel to another planet, right. drain that planet, right? Yeah, and and so you know, again, I am interpreting a twenty-five-year-old game at this point, but my hot take is, it makes sense to me if this is, you know, if Genova or the, I suppose the antagonist of Final Fantasy VII is not specifically Genova. Or Sephiroth, but it is this sort of parasite, this cellular disease that moves between hosts and has this objective. Um, sort of, kind of a halfway point between Lavos from Chrono Trigger and what they end up exploring in Parasite Eve. Mm-hmm. I mean, they did seem like they were just really on that sort of idea for like a good five-year mm-hmm. period, weren't they? Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah. you're right. They, it has parallels to Lavos. I mean, even Genova, as she still exists in Final Fantasy VII, has parallels to, like, Lavos from Chrono Trigger. And mm-hmm. then, yeah, everything about the original pitch of Final Fantasy VII just sort of became Parasite Eve after a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead and finish. Uh, so that's, you know, sort of what I was looking into. And that... I bring that up because I think it is helpful to inform what I'm going to, from here on, refer to as the Sephiroth situation. Mm-hmm. The Sephiroth situation, oh no. Yes. <laughs> Which I think is sort of a litmus test for where the writers of the project are from here on out. 
yeah, this project's going to give us a lot of Sephiroth and a lot of different takes on Sephiroth yeah. all throughout it. And boy, are they going to have some takes on Sephiroth, let me tell you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I appreciate you bringing that up because, yeah, I did not... I did not think to look at the um uh the uh like the different like art books and whatnot to see if there's any additional like background information on Genova. Like I mm. looked into like make sure it's like, oh yeah, she was a shape sister, right? Like, okay, yeah. yeah. But like to hear that like original concept, yeah, that original very parasite eve like concept mm. of like yeah, so people just have Genova in them, they can cause them to do different weird things. Kind of right. like how Parasite Eve really loves mitochondria and how it can make you do weird <laughs> things. Uh, is very, very fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they definitely had like a few thematic ideas that were floating around Square at the time and took on different manifestations through the different games they were doing. And it totally makes sense because for the longest time, Square is like a small company doing big boy stuff. Mm -hmm. So you have yeah. a lot of cross-pollination between their different projects. Yeah. So, yeah, it totally, totally makes sense that... I think a lot of these ideas also show up to some extent in Xenogears, which they're going to start working on. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right about that. But yeah, so... Yeah, interesting to see how, how these ideas just kept floating around the office like that. Right. Well, of course, we're going to be talking more about Sephiroth and all his, his crazy nonsense he's getting up to. But before we do that, we got to talk about all the other... Uh, I was about to say less interesting, but more just as interesting characters in Final Fantasy VII as yeah. we look at the collection of short stories called On the Way to a Smile. So On the Way to a Smile was a, a set of short stories released alongside Avid Children to kind of just help set up the world and how things were going for the team in the immediate aftermath of Final Fantasy VII. Now... Initially, it once again only consisted of three stories. The case of Denzel, the case of Barrett, and the case of Tifa. Before the release of Advent Children Complete in 2009, released a whole bunch more that we may or may not touch upon in, in a following part. They, uh, what little I have read is very disposable. Unless you mm. really want to know about Yuffie basically being tricked out of all of her materia by Cloud. I don't. <laughs> you know what? I kind of do. That does sound disposable, but also somewhat potentially delightful. <laughs> Basically, the entire team agrees to give uh, Yuffie all the material, but Cloud goes, oh, what do you need it for? She's like, oh, the rebuild Wu Tai. He's like, all right, cool. I'm going to keep all the fire material. Sounds cool. Because <laughs> <laughs> you don't need that stuff. You don't need the ability to set stuff, like summon like a big, giant, angry old god, right? She's like, I, I mean, but... It's like, yeah, if you need it, though, you can come back to my place here in Midgar and get it. But, you know, until then, I'll just I'm just going to hold on to it. <laughs> She's like, ah, bet, damn it. <laughs> See, this tickles me because I feel like it's the only significant interaction she and Cloud actually have. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. It's like occasionally he just needs to babysit her. Yeah. Yeah, that does happen like throughout Final Fantasy VII, where there's occasions where she'll he'll be like, "Yeah, seasick, huh? All right, let me give you some advice." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so we're only going to be focusing on the first three that were f released with Avid Children uh, in 2005, and that's once again the case of Bear, case of Tifa, and case of Denzel. 
And we're going to start with the case of Tifa. So uh, the case opens up with, and they all are done by the POV of the particular character that's involved. So case Tifa's okay. going to be from Tifa's POV, Denzel's going to be from Denzel's, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So it starts basically shortly after the events of Final Fantasy VII with um, Tifa basically reminiscing about how she reopened her bar, Seventh Heaven, and also about how she her and cloud adopted a couple of orphans uh one sure, orphan you do yeah one orphan is not an orphan but she basically might as well be and that's barrett's daughter marlene <laughs> which i guess she is technically an orphan she, but was, she, she was an orphan for a, a brief period she was and then she got adopted by barrett and then barrett in his best attempt to just never take care of marlene ever just like was like tifa you want to take care of her which I'd like to raise the point that he was taking care of her while he while being an eco terrorist. Yeah, yeah, he was. And then so the idea that having gone straight and doing like the stuff that he's up to that would prevent him from being an an active father, but not eco terrorism. Little weird. It is a little weird. Well, he has to travel the world to find himself, and you can't do that with a daughter next to you. No, that no, might... children hate traveling. Yeah, children hate traveling, and he might be like, "Oh, maybe my purpose is to help raise a better, raise my child, and like provide her with a better life than I had." Ah, nah, it ain't that. Yeah. Hey, Tifa, friend, why don't you raise her and basically call her your daughter? That sounds cool. Which is exactly what she does. Like, she refers to Marlene as, like, her daughter mm. in public and whatnot. And she ends up adopting another orphan by the name of Denzel, which we will talk about more, because Denzel is eight, he's one year older than Marlene, and he has something called the geostigma, which is basically a disease that's, like, basically a standard for leprosy, mm-hmm. and is 100% fatal. It It takes some time to kill you, but it will kill you. Now... Tifa is basically upset because her life with Cloud and the two kids is not what she expected. Uh, this is mostly because Cloud has taken on another job as a delivery serviceman and, like, has been going around doing jobs in, like, around Midgar and, like, the entire world and basically refuses to go come home, which worries both Tifa and, the you know, her band of orphans. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly Denzel, who Denzel looks up to Cloud like he's a dad, essentially. Like, he wants, mm. he thinks he's a hero. Mm-hmm. So Tifa then basically recounts the entire events of Final Fantasy VII uh, during this short story and basically notes that like when stuff like Aerith died and whatnot, she was never really sad. She just wanted to get revenge. She was incredibly angry. And she's mm-hmm. like really worried that she still has these feelings. And she's worried that this is going like, to completely consume her. But shortly after the end of Final Fantasy VII, Cloud like smiling goes like, hey, man, this is great. We can start a new life together me and you we don't have to worry about anything and he was like oh that's pretty great so it flashes back to the entire team visiting eris grave in the forgotten city and you know tifa who like is finally able to kind of come to terms with her sadness and is like able to cry feel like she let Aerith down and whatnot mm-hmm. uh, they take that with them as they go and visit elmira of uh, eris mo- adopted mom in calm and tell her about her death, which she's like, hey, you know, thanks for letting me know, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then Tifa, Cloud, and Barrett are like, okay, well, what's next? And they're like, well, why don't we go back to Midgar and help them rebuild and help their various problems? And so they start doing that. They start doing odd jobs and just, like, helping people out. And one day, Barrett basically gets, like, 
rewarded with a bunch of supplies that allows him to make hobo wine. <laughs> oh, okay. yeah. Literally, somebody gives him a still, a refrigerator, and a bunch of fruit, and he goes, why don't we make hobo wine with this? <laughs> okay, sure. And so he convinces Cloud and Tifa to help him out, and they're like, all right, cool, what are we going to do with this? And Bear's like, why don't we open up a new business in the town of Edge, which is uh, the, is a city on the edge of Midgar. Right, sure. And they're like, okay, sure. It's like, yeah, we're going to open a bar. And Tifa's like, uh, okay. He's like, and then Marlene's like, we can call Seventh Heaven, just like the old times. And Tifa's like, I don't really want this at all. Because Tifa's big thing is that she's trying to, like, avoid her past, avoid anger that she felt, whatnot. Mm. But she eventually is like, oh, you know what? I can't erase my past. I have to compromise with it and move on. So you know what? That's fine. Seventh Heaven, my past is my past. That's who I am, but I'm going to move forward to somebody different. And so that's what they do. They open up it up. Um, Tifa's the main proprietor. Barrett is the bouncer. And Cloud is in charge of getting supplies. Uh, this lasts all of one week before Barrett gets bored and leaves to find himself. Leave Marley <laughs> behind. <laughs> What's the... <laughs> and that's literally what happens. I'm not exaggerating. It's like, it's literally like one week later, Barrett's like, I gotta go find myself. Take care of my kid. <laughs> what is... What did they... Did they play Final Fantasy VII? <laughs> Do they know who Barrett is? I mean, the, the way we're gonna... I'm, I figure they think Barrett is is that in in um in his case of Barrett is basically just a man with a lot of anger management issues who really doesn't want to take care of his kid. But That's not correct! It is not, no. It is not. <laughs> like, it's understandable when he leaves Marlene behind in Midgard the first time, because it's like, I'm about to chase a really, really deadly man with a very yeah. long sword. Yeah, we're we're going to go looking for basically history's greatest assassin. Yeah. This time around, a lot less excuse. Yeah. Also, his yes, he was angry in Final Fantasy VII. He was angry at Shinra and the thing they were actively doing. Mm -hmm. he's not just an angry person he is a convicted and righteous person mm -hmm. and he had a battle to fight that he won mm -hmm. he doesn't just have to be angry all the time yeah exactly exactly and th this and the short story um a case of barrett does not do a good job of highlighting that uh it's something i really like about final fantasy 7 remake with white mm. barrett's character of like yeah, he, he has some slight anger management issues, but he's it come from a very honest place, it turns out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a motivation behind it. But anyways, Barrett's out of the story for now. Great, okay. So, it basically keeps going with Cloud, going to do, like, delivery runs and whatnot, and eventually he starts, like, taking on odd jobs. And, like, Tifa finds out about this and is like, hey, yeah, I've been kind of doing this thing on the side. And she's like, but no, that's great. You should start your own business. We can call it Strife Delivery Service. It'll be great. I'll handle the calls, me and Marlene. It'll be fantastic. And Cloud's like, rad. Uh, during this time, he also builds a really cool bike that can basically store all the swords. <laughs> and he calls it thinner. It's great. Yeah. It's a very, very bulky yet somehow streamlined looking bike. Yeah, it's, it's extremely large yet sleek. Yeah, it's honestly amazing. Yeah. Now, Tifa's initially on board with all this, but uh, this ends up causing a huge strain in the relationship because uh, Cloud's basically gone all the time. 
And, right. And it turns out, like, one day, like, Tifa sees an order from Elmira to deliver a bouquet to Eris' grave, of uh, which Cloud goes and does. And Tifa's pretty upset about this, because he's like, oh, Cloud is stuck in the past. He's not moving on like I did. He needs to move on. What's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, which might seem like an overreaction, but it turns out Cloud's also been just, like, sleeping in the church where Aerith used to hang out all the time. Right. So she's kind of not wrong. Yeah. Uh, now, one day while Cloud is doing his not going home to take care of the kids, that's when he ends up discovering Denzel. Turns out Denzel, you know, with the geostigma collapsed outside of the church and Cloud seeing him is like, oh, I need to take him back to Tifa. Uh, like said, take him to a hospital. Cause he's like, oh, Aerith must have like led this kid to me. And so... <laughs> Okay, dude. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh boy, that's the that's the framing we're going with, huh? Yep. All right. So holy mission, let's go. So Tifa takes in Denzel and is like, "Okay, yeah, sure. We let's totally raise this kid. Why not?" Um, okay. And like, so this this gives Cloud a newfound sense of purpose to hang around and help take care of this kid that Aerith clearly gave to him to help, right? Actually, yes. Oh. Yeah, for a short while, apparently he does, like, hang around more often. Tifa's pretty happy about it. Like, she gets a little sad, though, when, like, Denzel tells, like, Tifa his entire sad story, and she finds out that he told Cloud a long time ago at first, and she's like, uh, wait, what? She's, like, just a little little sad about that. Yeah. Um, but, like, Cloud does things, like, he, like, he teaches, like, Denzel and Marlene how to write and stuff, and, like, you know, just basically hangs out, but then, like, eventually he starts to drift again and start, um, and start being way longer, and, like, that's when, like, Tifa finds out he's been staying at the church, and she's, like, a little upset about that. Uh, I feel like we're going in circles here. We kind of are. We kind of are, because, and we're not gonna get a resolution to that until Advent Children, because literally right. right after that, the next day, Cloud goes out for a job, and Tifa attempts to call him, and just keeps getting, like, busy messages essentially or having to leave messages mm-hmm. uh, which is how it more or less starts out in final fantasy advent children so we'll learn what happens with that very soon but before then we got to figure out what's going on with barrett in the case of barrett oh boy do we <laughs> the case of barrett is really really u- feels really useless uh-huh Mostly because, like, I mean, it does actually establish how exactly the world is still running after they all quickly decide to stop using Mako energy. Right. But given how much involvement Barrett has in Advent Children and just anything going on in the future of Final Fantasy mm-hmm. Advent, it's like, y'all recognize that he was one of the main trio, but y'all didn't know what else you, to do. Yeah. <laughs> so, Case of Barrett starts with Barrett being like, take care of my kids, bye! And so his big thing is, like, he is kind of miffed at the fact that people think of him as, like, kind of a threat and just, like, an angry person. Uh, this happens when he's, like, in the streets of Junon. He's looking for this uh, old man by the name of Sakaki who built him his original gun arm. And, like, mm-hmm. a kid runs into his gun, like, accidentally starts bleeding. He's like, oh, hey, sorry. Hey, let me, you know, tend to your wounds and whatnot. And his mom's like, hey, I'll just give you whatever you want, man. I, we don't want to mess with you. And he's like, no, I'm fine. D- ignore the giant gun on my arm. It's fine. Yeah, to be fair, he should probably take the gun off the arm. Mm-hmm. He should. And to be fair, that's what he's going to old man Sakaki to do. Because he's like, okay. he's like, hey, listen, can you make something that's a little softer, essentially? 
mm-hmm. like something a little different. And like he goes through like so all these ideas in his head, like maybe maybe I could have like a plow arm so I can help people plow, or like a pick arm and I can like mine or something. Why is he turning himself into a robot master? I don't know. It, Just it, put a hand there, man. A lot of Barrett's ideas all throughout this are basically him acting like having the most basic ideas of what he could do with his arm. <laughs> Just with his life. It's like, I, I can help people dig, I guess. I don't know. It's like, uh, and we're going to learn, you can mm-hmm. apparently make all sorts of crazy things with gun arms or prosthetic hands. So like you could, you could be get crazy with this Barrett, but Barrett, unfortunately is a man of limited imagination. <laughs> I see. So Sakaki agrees to do this. Like, Originally, like, when he met Barrett, he, like, was kind of put off by how angry he was and whatnot. It's like, you know, take your gun arm, just leave, never come back. And mm. now that he's back, he's like, okay, you do seem a little changed. But in return, you got to help out by men who are just helping out people around Junon and whatnot. Uh, and, like, so Barrett goes with him, and it's like, when he's talking to the bodyguards, they're like, hey, why are you helping us out? And he's like, oh, well, you know, I kind of want to make up for my sins as being part of Avalanche, you know. We killed kind of a lot of people, like, innocent yeah. civilians, and... So that's kind of part of the reason why I'm out trying to find myself, you know, figure out, like, why am I so angry? Why am I doing all these things? And find a place for me in the world to help make it a better place. So they take a coal-powered truck, which apparently has, like, four people that needed to operate the thing. Like, mm. one person to drive, two people to shovel the coal into there, mm-hmm. and another person to just regulate everything. Uh, and we learned that basically the world was entirely run on coal before Mako took over. Right. Uh, and so, like, Barrett is, like, taken to this field to help pick potatoes and whatnot. And he notices that, like, hey, there's all these, like, derelict machines that used to run on Mako that are being used. And there's, like, food shortages everywhere. And they could, you know, pick a whole lot more potatoes if they use these machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, he then also finds, like, a young girl who dies from the geostigma. But before she does, she, like, wants to travel to Midgar because she heard there's a cure there. It turns out that, like, there totally isn't. And Barrett knows this. But he's, right. Like, well, maybe would give her just like a little bit of hope and allow her to die a little bit happier. If, like when the airships could take her there, but all the airships run on Mako, so and they're not right. happening. And like we learned that the a big reason why people are, uh, well, okay, actually, first he ends up going to Rocket Town because he's like, you know what, maybe I should go talk to Sid about all this because mm. it hurts that Sid is like trying to find alternate energy sources and whatnot. Right. Okay. Reasonable. Yeah. So. Baird runs into Sid. They basically curse and get angry about everything and are like, ha ha, we're very angry people. We're friends. <laughs> and... <laughs> uh... It's great. <laughs> okay, Sid has anger management issues. Yes, he does. Like, legit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That are barely ever addressed. <laughs> but yeah, here he's... um. He's like working on a combustion engine that's going to run on oil, which Barrett's like, oil? Oil's useless. Why is he going to use oil for anything? And then Sid explains, like, oh, well, actually, before like Mako was discovered, like a lot of the refine, there's a lot of refinement processes that were being put towards oil that looked very promising for making fuels. But then uh-huh. Mako was discovered and all of that technology was just put towards doing that for Mako. Because once again, Mako is just oil in this world, except right. oil also exists. And so they're like, well, if we could just repurpose all that to oil, we might have a fuel. And Barrett's like, oh, man, that's going to take a while, right? And he's like, yeah, probably. We haven't really discovered enough oil to actually use. 
So Barrett's like, well, what if we just use like a little bit of Mako to power some of these machines to make people's lives Okay, better? okay, stop. Right? Stop. Right? Right? No, that's... Right? That is not what Barrett would say. That is not what Barrett would say. This man blew up whole sectors of Midgard to stop them from using Mako. Mm-hmm. He killed a lot of people. Now he's like, what if we used a little so we could power an airship? Yeah, it's... It feels like legit character assassination. Like they're trying to like make like bear remorseful and like reconsider his positions, yeah. but it doesn't work because I don't think this is the one thing that he would reconsider. Yeah, no, this this is the line for mm-hmm. him. Exactly, exactly. Or at least one would hope, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like, and Sid like calls him out on this. He's like, "That's stupid. That's a dumb idea." First off, it would take a lot of Mako to run an airship. And two, none of the Mako reactors are working anymore anyways. Right. And, and Barrett's like, wait, well, why is that? It's like, well, and Sid explains two reasons. One, after the live stream literally came out of the ground to stop a meteor that was going to destroy the planet, everyone mm-hmm. and all the weapons that were running around and whatnot, uh, people figured out that the planet was pissed. Yeah. And so they're like, we're not going to mine anymore Mako. Uh, the second is that apparently the planet somehow changed the flow of the life stream so it can't be tapped anymore, which doesn't... What? Okay, sure. Yeah, sure. Whatever. Aerith was like, stop. Yeah, Aerith was like, nah, I'm good. Thanks. Um, stop burning people. And, and so, because of that, they can't use anymore. Now, there's still some Mako that's like, that was already refined and like, put into the reactors, and they're like, they're still using that in certain cases, but eventually that's all gonna be gone. And so that's why Sid's like, we got to figure out oil that's going to change everything. Barrett, you should help me find some more oil. And Barrett's like, yeah, sure. So they go out to this random desert where they meet up with Shara, Sid's uh, girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And Shara turns out has a geostigma and slowly dying. But it, it turns out they did actually manage to tap some oil. Um, the oil well they found ended up drying up. But with that, Barrett's like, you know what? I'm going to find more oil. We're going to make this happen. Oil's the key to the future, everybody. This part I find darkly hilarious. The idea of the eco-terrorists being like, yeah, oil. <laughs> like, I get it. It is logical from a world-building standpoint. You can't, like, they had an oil analog, but they didn't actually have oil. They haven't researched the negative effects of oil. There's no reason for them to skip straight to renewable energy. Mm-hmm. But thematically, it's like the Mako was an oil analog. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you've just you've moved them sideways. You did, yeah. And it's, um, yeah, so I, I ultimately don't think it works because of that. Because, yeah, it's like, but you already had an oil stand-in. Why you... Right. But I... It it is almost made up for for me in my mind by the fact that it's like yeah oil is gonna solve all these problems <laughs> because it's just something very funny about it to me because it's like yeah. they clearly don't know the, about the potential problems of like global warming and whatnot right and so they're like yeah this will be great there will be no issues yeah like again for a coal based society to discover oil and go. Yeah, this is the future makes perfect sense because that's what we did. Mm -hmm. And like, if they're not oil based yet, it makes sense that they don't have reservations about oil. Mm -hmm. But 
Also, come on. Also, come on, man. <laughs> yeah. It feels a little bit like spitting on Eric's grave is the thing. <laughs> it's it's a little bit like, yeah, we could look into windmills, but what about oil? What about oil? <laughs> Solar panels haven't invented yet that yet. No. So oil. No. Oil it is. Oil. Yep. Hydroelectricity. <laughs> <laughs> all right fine oil i yeah, guess oil i mean okay like so part of the reason this almost works is because barrett's like origin is he came from a coal mining town mm -hmm. he grew up in a coal town he became a coal miner until shinra showed up and killed them all to build a mako reactor there mm -hmm. and that set him on his path of eco-terrorism initially out of rage and vengeance and then eventually out of conviction that oh wait mako's actually really bad we're destroying the planet gotta stop that mm. and so like on the one hand i can see him like sort of now that that battle's over he needs to one return to his roots and to resolve any personal grief that he had left over mm. But it, it ignores all of the development that happened for him in Final Fantasy VII itself. Yeah. Yeah. It, and that's, that's the problem when you make a sequel to, to a game where, you know, that's, that has a very strong environmental message. That if you yeah. immediately have then, like, the chief person, the chief eco-terrorist be like, yo, I'm going to become an oil baron. Right. It maybe doesn't really quite work the way you hope. Yeah. Oh, man. But yeah, we're going to learn more about. OK, well, I guess I guess. No, we, just... we won't. <laughs> I mean, we technically do, but it's a throw it is such a throwaway line. It is. It's so throw like no one cares. It's not essential to the plot even though it's actually a core question of the world moving forward mm. which is hey what are all those cars running on and what are they gonna run on and how are you gonna rebuild midgar yeah uh it doesn't matter no one cares no one cares no we got geostigma and uh, sephiroth children to worry about mm -hmm. exactly exactly so yeah we're gonna learn that barrett's gonna become an oil baron he's gonna discover oil and that's it he yep. literally leaves a message for Cloud on his cell phone. <laughs> yep. That's the case of Barrett. Oh, actually, no, I, that's not the case of Barrett. He goes back to Sakaki with a new refound purpose, and he gets his new arm that we're going to be talking about more in Advent Children. Uh, oh, it, boy. It looks like a regular arm, but boy, does it do some dumb stuff. Oh, boy, does it. So the final case I want to talk about is the case of Denzel, the one new character that we're talking about right now. So Denzel, once again, is an orphan. It eventually gets adopted by Cloud, who has a geostigma. But as it turns out, that wasn't how things began for him. Now, this also does this kind of a similar thing to like uh, the case of Tifa, where it's kind of it starts in, I guess you call it the present day of Final Fantasy VII. And uh -huh. it's essentially a series of flashbacks because it starts with Denzel going to be interviewed by Reeve, you know, the uh, former Shinra mm. executive. Uh, who has formed a new organization called the World Regenesis Organization. Uh-huh. Uh, that we're going to learn more about in Dirge of Cerberus. Uh, basically, he's trying to join this to help rebuild the world and whatnot. And in order to kind of show why he should join it, he decides to tell his incredibly sad backstory to Reeve. Mm-hmm. And boy, is it unnecessarily sad. So, 
Denzel used to have a loving mother and father. Uh, his dad worked was a high-level exec uh, who worked in the Shinra Corporation, who actually even got a promotion right before some terrible events, and his mom mm-hmm. was a homemaker. They were living very happily on top of the plate of Sector 7. There it is. Yep. No, it gets out now. It gets better. It gets better. Because uh-huh. you see, since his dad was a high-level exec, he found out about the plan to crash the plate into the lower half of the city. And so he was like, oh, no, I got to get my son out of here. So he goes to get his son and his wife to get him out of here. But then he hears that there's something, that there's, like, some other problems going on in the city. So he has Denzel run away, and him and his wife go and, like, help out some other citizens in Sector 7. Unfortunately, the plane ends up crashing. They all end up dying. So congratulations, Denzel, you're now an orphan. Yep. So Denzel gets very, very sad about this, and he falls in with the group of orphans. And these group of orphans are all very sad and Dickensian. And one day, Denzel throws like a model airship through some old lady's window, and she gets real, real upset with him. But after finding out that basically he's been living alone and he's an orphan, she's like, oh, man, I feel bad for you. Why don't you come live with me? And so he does. And everything's going great. Until the whole thing with Meteor happens. Right. So as Meteor, of course, is trying to crash into Midgard, the live stream comes up out of the ground to stop it. But unfortunately, when that happens, like there's people that are actually in Midgar in the way of the live stream. Uh. And it turns out Denzel's adopted grandmother figure uh, pushes Denzel out of the way when the live stream comes through and she gets hit by it. The next day, she wakes up as one of the first victims of the Geostigma and dies mm. shortly afterwards. Basically, it's like black goop flowing out all of her pores and whatnot. It's absolutely horrifying. Yeah, it doesn't sound great. It doesn't sound great. And so Denzel gets to witness this. So he's like, well, crap, I'm an orphan again. So he falls in with another group of orphans who basically just go around collecting scrap from Sector 7 and selling it. And that goes well for him for a while until, like, people like machines move in on their territory and basically squeeze them out of business. So now uh-huh. he's not only an orphan, but he's an unemployed orphan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. It's a very Japanese conflict isn't it (laughs) it's like man i'm only eight but i already got pushed out of my work oh no my scrap business (laughs) but we have tiny orphan hands we can reach in and get get the rare scrap so all that goes on and then unfortunately denzel comes down with a geostigma and he passes out in front of the church where cloud finds him and he's like oh hey how's it going that sucks you should come with me and that's basically his story mm-hmm. that's and reeves like ah cool come aboard so yeah okay i i'm glad reeve did something uh yeah welcome to my business eight-year-old seems like not the correct answer reeve mm-hmm. yeah i know you've been in corporate for a long time but <laughs> like <laughs> yeah right kids eight man to be fair i think he may be older at this point but it's questionable how old oh, much yeah <laughs> and to be All fair right. it wouldn't be the first time that shinra has hired literal children to do dangerous yeah. jobs cloud was like i think technically 16 when he became a, a soldier as in a regular soldier not a, a super soldier right so you know 
but yeah um yeah so like with all of that oh it, it does actually technically end with denzel and cloud visiting the outskirts of Midgard, like laying yellow flowers out on zach's grave where he died which we'll get into that in a bit right and, and cloud being like hey let me tell you about the story about this hero who began his journey here and that's basically it so that all leads into probably the main thing that we're going to be talking about today because mm. uh uh last order honestly could be summed up in five minutes and that yeah. is final fantasy 7 advent children okay so to just summarize the story so far very briefly um mm -hmm. tifa's story amounts to what tifa has generally been in fallen Fantasy 7 which is a sad sack personification of refle reflecting on the past mm -hmm. uh barrett's character arc makes no sense in the context of the character that was already established in the game and Cloud's character, I don't hate. I just don't like the fact that it just refuses to do anything except move in circles. Yeah. He's a very um, mopey boy. He's constantly mopey. He's constantly mopey. And the, the problem is, in order to establish him as mopey, like, the, the issue that I ultimately have with his character in here and in Advent Children is that the end of Final Fantasy VII established some degree of closure and atonement mm -hmm. for him regarding his grief over Aerith. Mm -hmm. And in order to reach the character arc it is very determined to put him on, it kind of has to ignore that and just constantly drag him back into his sadness. Yeah, it's something you see often with sequels to very buttoned-up stories is that, like, well, you have to have conflict somehow, and sometimes right. the lazy shorthand they do is like, well, what if we just kind of reset how this character was in her arc? Right. Or just ign ignore the good things that happened to them at the very end, and, oh, what if what if we undid that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cloud is, uh... Cloud's gonna have some reasons to be sad, but unfortunately a lot of it is going to be based around yeah it's going to be based around Aerith and how he feels right. about that entire thing and it's yeah it's going to and be like, frustrating from a writing standpoint i get it because it is one of the aspects of the original story that stuck with people the most mm -hmm. like it, it, you know for years it was like a legitimate source of grief for the players mm-hmm and that that feeling of oh could is there something else that we could have done is there a way to undo it? it like it is something that the players felt so keenly that i can understand bringing that to the characters themselves mm. but at the same time it's like come on man there are other things start to move forward yeah yeah it feels like they could have done at least something else with Cloud to like maybe still make him mopey, but make him mopey at least about something else. Like, right. Yeah. Like, like, hey, you know, he there's this kid who has a geostigma that he feels real bad about and looks up right. to him like a hero. And he's like, can I actually save him and prove that I'm a hero to him? Like, right. Like, you could do that. <laughs> and I feel like they're they're going to kind of try to. Mm hmm. But the fact is, the fact that he, the main character arc they 
tend to just drag him back to is that when faced with difficulties and uncertainty like that, his tendency is to give up, and that brings him back to the old dark places. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of interesting, but it's also kind of infuriating. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I hate to say that that is something that's actually kind of realistic for a lot of people. Yeah. So it, it's something I'm not going to completely knock this for, but right. there's there's a reason like a lot of like fiction does like try to move on from that space because you're right, it's very frustrating. Yeah, and I I think it would it would probably work better if Advent Children, which we'll get to, ultimately had a more compelling way to move forward from that place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Instead, the way it's going to move forward is via a kind of deus ex machina. <laughs> Little bit, yeah. And then Cloud kind of just sort of being like, well, I guess things are okay. I'm over my trauma now. Yeah. Oh, man. But yeah, we should probably talk about the plots of Final Fantasy VII Advent Children. And in a rare twist, instead of... Uh, you know, me just kind of like looking into this myself. Alex actually watched this movie with me. So yes, yes, I did. Oh boy, it was a it was an interesting interesting time. It is an experience in movies. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, you, the viewer, if you want to actually watch it yourself, yeah, all pretty much all the Squares movies are for free on YouTube. Like not pirated for free either; just straight mm-hmm. up for free. Uh, if you do want to watch Final Fantasy VII Avid Children and you want to watch the complete version, uh, don't watch the free version. It's mislabeled. They yes. accidentally mislabeled it as complete, as we found out. Yep. <laughs> don't, don't worry, though. You're not, you're not really missing that much. But yeah, still. no, that, yeah, the free version contains as much narrative content about as the complete extended version. Yeah, if you want things to be slightly prettier and you want the fights to be longer, get the complete version. It, but with that, let's talk about this. So, Final Fantasy VII Advent Children takes place two years after the ending of Final Fantasy VII. Uh, and in case you're wondering what the ending of Final Fantasy VII was and need a refresher, don't worry. Advent Children has you covered because they literally Ugh. replay the after credits cutscene, uh, albeit now in their new brand making new engine that. I hate to say it does not look that great as it looked well. It looked very nice at the time. These days, like, oh, environment textures don't look good. Mm-hmm. From there, a narrator tells us about essentially the events of Final Fantasy VII while remastered versions of all your favorite cutscenes from Final Fantasy VII play. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, it ends up ending after that with... Uh, back at the bar seventh heaven with Tifa trying to get in contact with cloud after getting phone calls for the strife delivery service, just kind of wondering where he is. Uh, we see that uh, she has, of course, two lovely orphans with her, Marlene and Denzel. Uh, Denzel's going to play a role in this movie that is sort of pointless, but they, boy, they're going to have him on screen an awful lot doing and yeah, saying sure nothing. Are. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so, it turns out Cloud is in the midst of doing a delivery run on his cool-ass bike, the Fenrir, when, as he is traveling back to Midgar, three shadowy figures are looking at him from over a cliff. 
they realize that he may know the location of mother and he must they must get him for he is their brother and by being and since they're their brother they should be friends or at least they should be working together in the same goal so these three figures are basically three sephiroth clones uh, kind of probably kind of probably they basically look like sephiroth if sephiroth had different builds and different ideas about how to do his hair yeah now, these three people are Kadaj, who is basically like the confident Sephiroth, uh, kind of a slender, about as tall as Cloud, so not quite as tall as Sephiroth is. Um, mm. You know, kind of like medium longish silver hair. Uh, he has a sword that is a katana, except it's a double katana. That's so stupid. It's a stupid sword. So stupid. He is basically the leader of the group. Next to him is Laz. Laz is basically tall, buff Sephiroth with short hair. Uh, his big thing is that he is basically kind of like masochistic, but he's also very much in touch with his feelings because he will constantly cry if Mother is ever talked about. Um, and then finally, there's Yazoo. He is um, basically Sephiroth with long hair, and he's there too, I guess. He's got guns. I watched this movie two days ago. I forgot what Yazoo's name is. I had to look it up too as well because they mentioned his name once. He has uh -huh. his big thing is that he's the quiet, calm, and serious version of Sephiroth. And they basically translate that to he does absolutely nothing. He does nothing. He does absolutely nothing. So these trio are supposedly the physical manifestation of Sephiroth's surviving spirit. Uh, literally, Kadaj like is born from a puddle of black water in Junon. Uh, as mentioned in the 2011 novel, Final Fantasy VII, the kids are all right. Yeah, so that's the thing is, if you're wondering who are these people, where did they come from, why are they here, the movie's not going to tell you. They aren't. No. It'll tell you what they're trying to do, but it's not really going to tell you why <laughs> or from whence. Yeah, exactly. And... You're probably wondering, how is a person born from a pool of black water? And the answer is called, the live stream is sort of infected by Genova at this point. And, yeah. And um, so because of that, people who get in contact with the live stream now kind of get infected by Genova as well, which causes them to develop the geostigma and eventually kill them. Or in the case, I guess, of these three chuck chuckleheads, uh, they end up just becoming weird Sephiroth clones. Not to be confused with the black-robed figures from the game that mm. people came to call Sephiroth clones. Yeah, those just got Sephiroth cells put into them by a very crazy scientist who was really into the idea of breeding two different species. That's an entirely yeah. different thing. So, they see him as like, okay, let's get on our own cool, like, motorbikes and let's just, like, take them on. So, like, uh, Kadaj, for one reason, is able to summon ghost dogs and so he uses that to attack uh, Cloud, and eventually they all get into like a big giant fight. Uh, Yazoo actually shoots Cloud in the face, which you think would be very bad, but it turns out, no, uh, he's fine. He, he, he he's been hit by meteors before, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. It, it turns out bulls, bulls don't do anything bad to a boy. Yeah. And so, this fight's pretty cool dynamic, like, constantly he's like, open up Friender to take out different swords to attack with, and like, mm. jumping from like, 
motorcycle to motorcycle and back onto his motorcycle. It's a pretty cool scene that basically ends with Cloud more or less getting thrown off of his bike, surrounded by them, about to be killed before they go. Ah, uh, no, nah, actually, we we have plans for you, and it's just sort of leaving. <laughs> and so Cloud's like, huh. All right. Yeah, that happened. People. But, you know, yeah, he's like, that's, that's, a, that's a thing. So Cloud goes back to the bar, meets up with Tifa. They have a little bit of spat about how I don't Cloud's... think he actually does. I think he just listens to her phone message. You're right, actually. You're right. Uh, there's a later scene where he goes back and he gets... Right. Uh, he basically gets the, the uh, Red the Riot Act, essentially, for never being around. Uh, yes, because it turns out Reno and Rude, the Turks, have a mission for him. They want him to meet up with them. And Tifa relays that message to him. So Cloud goes to do does this. Um, this is when we hear from Barrett that apparently he's now become an oil baron. So good on him. Yeah. And so he ends up uh, going to meet up with uh, Reno Rude. So he, he opens up this door to like this Shinra facility, and like Reno like immediately tries to attack him, and he just like sidesteps, locks the door behind him, so Reno can't get back in. Uh. The, the poor Turks in this entire thing are basically just like comedy relief at this point. Pretty much, yeah. Which is kind of, kind of too bad for them, but... Uh, yeah, this is a little bad. It's a little weird, honestly. It is. It is. It's like they realized this movie's a really dour and straight-laced, and they went, well, what if we just had, you know, something to kind of break this action up? So, I was like, hey, what do you idiots want? And Ruth's like, our employer wants to speak to you. And he walks to the side, and it turns out it's Rufus Shinra! He's somehow alive! He's got the geostigma, he's covering his head with basically a white towel, and he's apparently crippled in a wheelchair. Anyways, his thing is that, like, oh, hey, yeah, man, there's these, like, really crazy Sephiroth clones that are just kind of showing up, and they're they're trying to, like, resurrect Sephiroth uh, using uh, Genova's head, and they're trying to find that. It's really bad. You should probably help us, like, uh, try to stop them and also maybe rebuild Shinra? That'd be cool, right? That'd be cool. Like, Rito literally was like, yeah, man, Ex think about it, Cloud. You could rebuild Shinra. Cloud like, immediately leaves. Yeah, Cloud's like, no, I'm good. Idiots, I'm going. I'm going home. Also, in true Rufus Shinra fa fashion, he doesn't even explain all that. He's just like, wow, we're being attacked by some people. We need a bodyguard. You want to be a bodyguard? And Cloud's <laughs> like, no. Yeah, that's right. He totally does that. It's it's <laughs> Reno is the one that's like, you can help me build Shinra. And it's like, what? Shut up. <laughs> so it turns out that slightly before the events of all this, uh, the Turks went back to Northern Crater to basically get Genova's remains and successfully did get a hold of the head. Unfortunately, they were assaulted by the uh, the three Sephiroth clones. And uh, Singh and Elena ended up basically getting, like, badly, badly messed up. Like, the only thing they found were their bloodied IDs. Uh, I'll, I'll spoil this now. They're perfectly fine, it turns They're out. fine. There's, there's no marks on them. There are They're no fine. marks at all. So... Also, I'm, I'm going to bring this up real quick. Uh, they keep talking about finding or holding Genova's head. Mm-hmm. Um, this is another thing the Ultimania Omega mentioned. That's probably not actually her head, if only because you'll notice it's very small. Yeah. Um, they The Ultimania basically said that it is some portion of her remains 
and being called her head is just like sort of how they referred i think they even mentioned it was like an internal label for it that just kind of stuck mm. but it's it's just like a collection of her cells more or less huh i see yeah, yeah that, that honestly film, makes a lot more sense yes the film staff have said the remains are merely random clusters of her cells and the term head was used due to a lack of an official term and it's stuck hmm interesting so yeah like that all happens, and we then cut back to Tifa and Marlene. So it turns out they're just sort of hanging out in the church where Aerith was, like, just kind of, like, just doing things, being cool, I guess. And when all of a sudden, Laz shows up, and he's like, oh, hey, I bet you know where Mother is. Can you take me to Mother? And Tifa's like, yeah, she's, I don't know who that is. She is not here. Can you please leave? He's like, I'm going to kidnap Marlene now. I'm going to kidnap that girl. We need orphans. We need orphans for our plan. <laughs> she was like, I, you're not going to. No, no, OK, we're going to get into a fight now. We're just I'm, I'm, we're going to throw hands. We're throwing hands now. And so they get into a big old giant fight that just sort of happens in the church. By the way, if that sounded like just really weird and random, that is literally how it goes. It's, it's pretty weird. It's pretty weird and random. Mm -hmm. And so they have a very dumb fight that really look that great uh it doesn't where tifa basically just bodies laws just like listen man i fought sephiroth you can't do anything to me um until the fight is very clearly over and then laws gets up and gets a phone call where it's like oh yeah no the mother's not here no i'm not crying shut up okay i'll go ahead and end the fight now hey i, I got a like i got like a taser arm just gonna just punch you it, knock you out now Gonna take this girl see you later and that's exactly what he does so tifa just yep. immediately jobs so yep got piccoloed mm -hmm. so cloud like comes back to the church and he's like he finds tifa there he's like oh geez what happened this is everything okay and she's like cloud they took marlene and cloud's like wait that's how oh and then he immediately passes out because it turns out cloud actually has a geostigma and with that, he ends up passing out. And during this, he ends up having a dream of Aerith visiting him. It's like, being like, hey, how's it going? Man, things seem really rough for you. Maybe you should do something about that. He's like, but I'm sad, though. But I'm sad. And then he wakes up back at his home with, uh, with Tifa. It turns out that Reno of Root found him and basically brought him back there. And then he also informed him that, hey, listen, the remnants of Sephiroth, which is, I guess, what the name of this group is, uh, have been kidnapping orphans for some reason, specifically orphans who have the geostigma in him. If they basically are saying that they can cure him and they were like, hey, get in the back of our cool pickup truck. We're going to go and take you to the cure. It's going to be great. And Cloud's like, OK, well, where do they go? And like oh they're up in the forgotten city and cloud's like oh well maybe i'll should go do that and i'll look around for marlene here tifa's like hey no no no, you need to go up there and do that you need to go up there because that's probably where marlene is and also you're just running from your past right now just like how you've been sleeping in a church and whatnot and just kind of hanging out in that hanging out there and avoiding me and doing all this and not being around our kids Gotta be there for our kids, Cloud. I can't reason by myself. And Cloud's like, ah, 
I, mm, okay, fine. I'll go there. I'll go to the Forgotten City. I'll go to my dead, maybe girlfriend's grave, I guess. Uh. To be fair to Cloud, man, this is a weird situation he's found himself in. Isn't it? He has a debilitating disease. His weird quasi-son and quasi-daughter have been kidnapped by three clones of his mortal enemy. Taken to his girlfriend's grave. And his two of his biggest enemies are basically like, hey, you should go there and do that. And also his current girlfriend is like, you should yeah, go there and do like that. You should, you should go to your, your old girlfriend's grave who was also my friend. We were all friends. Man, this is weird. Mm-hmm. It's very I don't, weird. I can only get on his ass so much. Yeah. Yeah, this is a situation where I, I kind of don't blame him for being like, I don't know if I want to deal with any of this right now. Right. <laughs> but Cloud decides he's going to. And so he gets on his motorcycle and somehow crosses three continents and some oceans and goes to the Forgotten City. Now, it turns out, at the Forgotten City, Kadaj has gotten all his orphans together and is like, listen, orphans, we are one and the same. I am going to give you the ability to take back what's ours, take back the planet, just like our mother told us to. And we're going to do this by me turning this water black and you drinking it. Do that and everything's going to be great. So the orphans go. Well, I mean, sure, you did. You took us to this weird pond. Why not? So they drink the nasty pond water, and then all of a sudden they get green cat eyes, uh, much like Sephiroth had. And also, they now like stop speaking and have like superpowers. Yeah, it's a little unclear what that actually did. Yeah, because they're gonna do absolutely nothing with this. Uh, yeah, no, no. Because Cloud's gonna show up immediately gets into the. F- get into a fight with all three of the Sephiroth clones. And, like, the kids are going to show up, too, but their basic thing is that they're going to jump really high and land in front of them. And then, like, when they, like, a boulder or, like, a motorcycle approaches them, they'll just, like, jump out of the way. But otherwise, they don't speak. They don't do anything. They're just kind of there. And it's, like, uh, cool, I guess. Yeah. Anyways, Cloud's not able to quite defeat them, but before he gets killed, uh, Vincent Valentine shows up and rescues him. And take, like, just basically gets him out of there. So, Vincent. Good old Vincent's just been kind of hanging around this entire time. And in... (laughs) Oh, my God. This is so great. So, all the characters have been redesigned. Like, Uh their clothing and whatnot, their hairstyles. And the main reason is because they were like, well, the original designs, we don't feel like they would translate well to this format. Right. Which... I mean, they were actually pretty down-to-earth designs, so I'm not really sure I agree, but, like, whatever. Yeah, I mean, Remake kind of proves that they do. Yeah, they, they totally do, but, hey, whatever. You know, you want to redesign your characters, and Nomura uh, was the main character designer for this, as he was in the original. He's like, right. I want to do something where everyone wears all black everything, and everyone's wearing, like, very flowy clothing and whatnot. Right. So that's cool. Everyone got that redesign. Uh, not Vincent. Nope. Vincent nope. looks exactly the same as he does in Final Fantasy VII, complete with, like, really weird gold spiky shoes and everything. He looks so out of place. It's so weird. His shoes look so dumb. hmm Yeah, it's great. It's great. 
Anyways, Vincent's like, hey, listen, I've been spying on this entire time. It looks like they're trying to fight Jadova to provide Sephiroth or something. It's really stupid. You should probably do something about that. Also, I rescued Marlene for you. Here's Marlene. And Marlene's like, hey, Cloud, how's it going? He's like, oh, hey, hi, adopted sort of daughter. Uh, anyways, we should, um, I, I need to go stop them now. And she's like, but I want to go home and see Tifa, and I want us to be a family again. And Cloud's like, I, but no, I really think I need to stop this, these these people. And Vince is like, basically, he's like, maybe you should be a father, Cloud. <laughs> <laughs> Which, oh boy, when Vincent's telling you, get yeah. your shit together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's like, move on from your past. And Cloud's like, okay, fine. Marlene, let's go home to Tifa. Let's just, let's do this. And it's meant to be like this big character moment, but it's actually kind of funny because it's like, no, actually, he does need to stop these people. He does need yeah. to stop these people. Yeah. <laughs> so we then suddenly cut back to Midgar and... The, basically, the three Sephiroth clones and their weird orphans are standing mm-hmm. around a monument to basically the meteor falling on Midgar and how the live stream saved it. Like, basically, the citizens built this monument and they were like, we've discovered that mother is here. We have these chains that we're holding that's connected to it because we're going to tear it down. That's where it is. It's definitely here. We've deduced it. That's where it's hidden. And, like, all the citizens of the city are, like, surrounding him, like, mm. for reasons that are not clear. I, I don't know if it's because they have the orphans or they're trying to tear down a monument or what have you. But they're like, hey, yeah, you should all join us. This is this would be cool, right? And they're like, rabble, rabble, get out of here. And, they, and they're like, they're, like, they're really unsure of themselves. They're like, uh, we don't, I don't know if this is a good idea. Ah, <laughs> uh, this, this doesn't seem to have worked out well, us kidnapping these children. But thankfully, Kadage has an idea. And the idea is that he's going to summon ghost dogs to attack and murder all of them. Cool. Which is what he does. <laughs> so there's two levels of kind of, wait, what here? One of which is, so what are the orphans doing there? What do they need them for? Right? They do absolutely nothing. They do nothing. But the thing about that is at least they got the orphans to drink the black goo and become mind control Sephiroth puppets. Mm-hmm. What did they need Marlene for? <laughs> what was their plan with Marlene that Laws had to go to the church to kidnap her and drag her all the way to the Forgotten City for they didn't even make her drink the water and she was just fine? And then she left, and they didn't even look into it. Yeah. The the closest thing I could figure out is that maybe they were trying to lure Cloud to them, and they knew they could with Marlene, but that's never explained. They could with Denzel! They could, yeah. (laughs) They could have, but... The thing about these three is that they're very mentally unstable, and their plans are incredibly bad the entire time. Yeah. And that is, the, that is like the one consistent thing about this movie, besides being confusing, is that these three have just this vague plan of get Genova, question mark, question mark, question mark, revive Sephiroth? <laughs> and yeah. it just basically just bumble around doing random things. Like, what if we mind control a bunch of orphans? It's like, cool, what are we going to do with these orphans? I don't know. What if we tear down the statue? Do, do we actually know if it's there? It's like, I, I don't know. I have my divining rods here. It's... It's crazy. Yeah, they, they don't know. They don't know. They're very confused. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, to be fair, they were made from a puddle, I guess. So, sure. Yep. 
Yep. Yeah. So, you know, they, they, they're trying their best. They're trying their best. So as ghost dogs are attacking them and whatnot, Kadaj goes up into this random skyscraper where it turns out um, good old Rufus is hanging on out. Uh, and he's like, hey, Rufus, guess what? We found out where where Genova's head is. It's it's in that statue. Rufus is like, oh, yeah, yeah, I bet it is. Bet it totally OK, so is. there's another weird thing about this, hmm. which is. Okay, so they first encountered these guys in the northern crater mm-hmm. where they beat up Sang and Elena and kidnapped them. And then later they show up to confront Rufus and like body Reno and Rude. Mm-hmm. And then Reno and Rude just show up at 7th Heaven later. Mm-hmm. And then later Rufus is just hanging out with the clone kids. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what is anyone's interaction here? Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I guess I did kind of skip over that. Yeah, they, the clone kids go, uh, the, the clone trio end up going to like Rufus's little hideout, beat up uh, Reno and Rude, and go like, right. Where, where's her head? And Rufus is like, I don't know, fell out of the helicopter. And like, we don't believe you. It's like, okay. Like, well, we're going to leave now. And then they do. <laughs> it's like, and then they do. And then Rufus shows up with them later. Yeah. Like, how did Rufus get that? Why did Rufus get there? Yeah. Was he with them the whole time? Yeah, I don't know. I guess. Maybe. But regardless, they're just he's just up there and like listening to Kajaz just like say a bunch of stuff. And he's like, Kajaz is like, I know a way I can tear down that monument. And it turns out he ended up stealing all of Cloud's materia when Laws went to uh, the the church in uh, in uh, in Midgar. And with one of the materia, he used that to summon Bahamut Sin. A giant dragon with very human-like teeth. That's very, very weird looking. Mm-hmm. And with it, he basically just like blows up the monument. He's like, yes, soon we'll get mother. It's going to be great. And then Rufus is like, oh, yeah, you mean this? <laughs> Pulls out Genova's head. He's like, what? You had this entire time? He's like, yep. Oh, also, by the way, I'm not crippled. Gets up, <laughs> dramatically throws off. <laughs> dramatically throws off the towel on his head shucks out Genova's head out of the skyscraper window jumps out of skyscraper window gets up to gun battle in midair with Kadaj shoots the Genova container uh, causing it to leak fluid before being rescued by Elena's and who basically just shoot out like like net like uh, nets via guns to like like stop his fall like Rufus is basically done for this movie. I don't know why mm-hmm. he decided to just like be incredibly extra right there, but it's 100% within his character. And it's I so it. on character. I and I, I got to give a golf clap to him for being the best character in this movie <laughs> in just having the biggest stones mm-hmm. because the implication is he not only had Genova's head the entire time, he was holding it under the blanket. Yep. Which means that scene before where Kadaj shows up and like there's a scene where like he bows to him to be like, hey, don't I look like Sephiroth? That's funny, right? Kadaj's head is like two feet from mm-hmm. the box. Mm-hmm. And Rufus is just like, he doesn't know. He doesn't know. <laughs> I, I, I got him. I got him. He doesn't know. <laughs> he's right it. here. It's right in front of him. He doesn't know. Yep. He, you know, he's loving it. He's just loving it on the inside. <laughs> Dumb kid. <laughs> yeah, it's so great. It's so great. 
Anyways, Kadaj manages to get a hold of the now leaking Genova head, and he's like, hey guys, we got it! And they all get on motorcycles and like, start driving away. Um, but not before the rest of the Final Fantasy VII crew, all your favorites, like Red 13, Barrett, Sid, Yuffie, and everyone show up to fight Bahamut Sin and stop it before it like rampages, destroys everything. And so they end up having a big dumb fight with it. Um, but it doesn't look like they're going to be able to stop it until Cloud shows up. And Cloud's like, oh man, hey, how's it going? I'm, I'm going to stop it now. Can you all just like basically like throw me up to it? That'd be kind of cool. <laughs> Oh, and before I move on and forget, uh, Barrett, by the way, has, of course, his like, new arm and whatnot. His arm can transform into a Gatling gun that yeah. then can extend four other Gatling guns that rotate around his Gatling gun and all shoot bullets. I don't know how this is possible. There doesn't seem it's like a space It's also a particle in projector. It is also a particle projector. Yeah, and at a certain point, he does just like start shooting off plasma shots. It's great. Oh. So, yeah, um... Muhammad Sin, also, like, he's really into, like, fishnet shirts now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Fishnet shirts. He got those cornrows going on. Uh, yeah. He's radically different look for Barrett. He doesn't look like a man who's figuring it out. He does not. He looks like a man who, <laughs> at this point, is 37 and going through a midlife crisis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, got a, got a tricked-out gun arm. It's great. It's his, his version of a Corvette. So... Bahamut Sin, like, basically rises in the sky to more or less nuke the entirety of Midgar with, like, a big old beam. And so in order to get up to him, basically Cloud is more or less, like, like thrown up into the air by everybody. Like, first Red 13 throws him up, then Sid, and then, like, everyone's, like, running up, like, the skyscraper. Skyscrapers, like, grab Cloud and throw him even higher. Like, Tifa, like, does one last throw to get him up there. And like Cloud basically literally activates his limit break, which that's what he has like a blue glow around him. And that is actually a limit break. Mm -hmm. Use that to basically bust through like Bahamut Sin's like giant energy ball that he shoots, like dissipating it. And then just absolutely wrecks him, destroying Bahamut Sin and, you know, basically saving Midgar. And with that, he like lands. He's told like, oh, man, d d the trio is getting away with Genova's head. You better get them. So he gets on his motorcycle and goes and starts chasing him. Gets to a big old dumb fight where he does a lot better this time. Uh, and, like, manages to, like, destroy, like, like Yazoo's, like, guns and whatnot. Like, disables um, uh, Laws' like, motorcycle and whatnot. Leaves him behind. And just leaves Kajaj the only one who's able to get away. So, like, he chases after Kajaj. Uh, gets past, like, they all drive past Rito and Rude, who basically have just, like, rigged up, like, the world's base, like, greatest, like, pipe bomb. Mm -hmm. uh, so that when, uh, uh, Laws and Yazoo show up, they basically just, like, blow it up, taking them out, taking out a portion of the highway, and keeping them from being able to chase after Cloud. So, they basically drive to the logical end of the, the freeway, which turns out leads into the remains of Sector 7. Upon landing there, they basically get into a big old giant stupid fight, which where Cloud basically just bodies Kadaj. And so Kadaj, like, is basically done for. And he decides, you know what? I'm going to do the one thing I can do. I'm going to hop off this building with Genova's head. I'm going to put her remains inside me. And that's going to somehow make me into a Sephiroth. <laughs> 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 which is exactly what it happens. Sephiroth shows up and is like, hey, Cloud, how's it going? I like your clothes. 
I'm gonna now kill you, but not before explaining my entire plan. He's like, yeah, so my entire plan is that I'm going to basically use the Geostigma to more or less strangle all life on the planet, rendering it li completely lifeless. I'm going to absorb all that energy, and then just like Genova was going to do, I'm going to take this planet and sail through the cosmos in order to find another planet and make it my paradise. And then Cloud's like, well, what about our planet? Except for I was like, I, I just told you. <laughs> but I guess that's up to you. I guess that's up to you. <laughs> Or not, if I kill... I don't... <sighs> the dialogue in this fight... It's bad. ...makes no sense. It makes no sense. <laughs> so they have a big old dumb old fight where they're just like clashing swords and whatnot. A rock version of One Wing Angel is playing that was incredibly, incredibly popular when it came out at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, like buildings are being cut in half... All sorts of things are happening, but the big thing is that Cloud is just barely, barely holding on. Like, he can barely keep up with Sephiroth. The High Wind shows up with everybody on it, and everyone's like, oh man, we should go down there and help out Cloud. Except for Tifa, who's like, nah, this is his fight. He needs like to finish this. <sighs> everyone else is like, oh yeah, you're totally right, this is his fight. And then they just fly away. Tifa never missing an opportunity to not help Cloud with his trauma. <laughs> exactly. It's great. It's great. I'm sure Tifa hung out just a little bit longer and, you know, watched Sephiroth literally flew, flung him into the air and then stab him multiple times. <laughs> She'd be like, oh, well, wow, maybe oh, shit, we, we should help. Down, we need to get down there. We need to get down there. <laughs> Which, uh, unfortunately, she didn't. And that does happen to Cloud. And Cloud's like, well... This is going bad. Sephiroth rises in the sky to basically do his final attack. And then Cloud gets a vision of Zack. And Zack's like, hey, man, this is going bad. Maybe if you, you did better and were like a soldier, which yeah. you're totally capable of. I know you didn't make it in as a soldier, but you're totally capable. If you have the heart for it, you could, you could beat him. Do it. And then Cloud wakes up and is like, I can do it. And so, using his sword, he separates it out into six different swords, and he does his final limit break, the Omni Slash, killing Sephiroth. And, but before Sephiroth leaves, he tells him to stay in his memories. And Sephiroth's like, ha, I'll never be a memory. Which, uh, given, given the trajectory Square Enix is on, yep. he's totally correct. Yeah, not inaccurate. Mm -hmm. So he dissipates, and... Um, Oh, it should be noted that right before this, Cloud basically like rant, lands in a puddle of water. Like it turns out, it's like the life stream, and it, mm -hmm. he basically is cured of his geostigma. And with Sephiroth gone, Aerith is basically able to cause like a life stream infused rain to happen, which heals everybody with the geostigma, except anybody who's inside. <laughs> but don't worry, Cloud basically gets them all together at Aerith's church, which is now full of, like, life stream water, and he basically baptizes them all, curing them with the geostigma. It's great. It's great. <laughs> yeah. It's... Uh... Yeah. So, oh, it, it should be noted that one other thing does happen. Laws and Yazoo do show back up. Like, Yazoo actually shoots Cloud through the chest, which um, is less debilitating the Cloud than you think it would be. Yeah. And then they blow themselves up trying to kill Cloud, but fail. So oh, they're gone. Congrats. Problem solved. Mm -hmm. So Cloud like has a dream of Zack and Aerith who are like, man, look at him. 
boy, he seems like a guy who needs a family, but he's a little too old for us to adopt. Maybe he should go and hang out with his family, and he could join us later, because this is not his time to die. Anyways, keep living, Cloud. And Zack's like, I'm gonna go get back with my old girlfriend. Take care, Cloud. <laughs> Turns into a wolf and walks off. Yeah, Zack's, Zack's spirit animal is now a wolf for mm-hmm. some reason. I don't know. Anime loves wolves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he shows that that wolf shows up multiple times throughout the movie to basically like lick Cloud in the face when he's knocked out and stuff. <laughs> and so, you know, Cloud basically wakes up and agrees that he's going to live his life in the present instead of the past. And I don't know, maybe raise his damn kids. The end. Maybe. And that's that's Final Fantasy seven. Advent children. Oh, it sure is. Boy, it sure is. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So, my thoughts on this, and it's it's really interesting to me, because this is, this was sort of the big element in the compilation uh, sequel push that Square did for Final Fantasy VII. Like this, this was sort of the kickoff point of as far as like mass appeal went, mm-hmm. um, that would then lead in the Crisis Core and Dirge of Cerberus, and it, it kind of highlights the problem, which is it doesn't feel like, it feels like the farther we got away from Final Fantasy VII, the less people understood about what actually worked mm-hmm. with Final Fantasy VII. Um, none of the characters in this movie are good. No, no, they aren't. Like, Baird and Tifa, we already established with the novels that they weren't going to be good characters. Mm. Um, Vincent, Yuffie, Sid, Red, and Kate Sith might as well not be in the movie. Vincent gets more lines, but he doesn't actually do anything. No, he just rescues Cloud and goes, maybe you should be a dad, and leaves. Um, and then there's the sort of plot central trio of Cloud, Aerith, and Sephiroth. Mm-hmm. And with Cloud, I still feel the way I felt, which is I kind of, I get what they're going for. And it is somewhat interesting to sort of examine how does Cloud, you know, Cloud came to terms with who he needs to be in FF7, but how does he actually do that? Um, and the answer is badly and mopily, mm. but he gets there, I guess. Aerith is the problem. The problem I have with Aerith in this movie is that she represents the sort of, I think the sort of idealized, almost like, I don't know if gentrified is is not the right word, but it's that same spirit of like, oh yeah, she was the she was the sweet good girl that was always smiling and encouraging people. And Aerith yeah. should be jumping up Cloud's ass from the moment she starts talking. Mm-hmm. Why are you treating Tifa this way? Why are you treating those kids that way? You need to grow up. You mm-hmm. need to be a man. You need to go back and be the person I know you can be. You are being an idiot and an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Like in her own like little teasing way, but essentially right. that because Yeah, nicer, but like Aerith can get mad at people and mm-hmm. she should be mad at Cloud right now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like 
it's this and like the oddly enough the kingdom hearts series where oh yeah yeah they, this is where the the transformation of tifa not tifa Aerith being into this just above it all almost mm-hmm. like a goddess like figure of like just purity is mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's not her it is not yeah. her at all it's so boring mm-hmm. it's like oh you seem like you're having a hard time no like verbally slap him in the face girl come on mm-hmm. yeah yeah i don't like what they did with Aerith here no and then speaking of characters that missed the point okay so here's here's the thing i don't hate the plot of this movie hmm. um i like i said i i think that examining the way or following cloud as he tries to move on from his trauma and reestablish his life, even if it is in this sort of false starty, frustrating way can be interesting and it can be well done. Mm -hmm. And from the side of like what is happening with the planet, again, going back to the idea of Genova as a virus, as this sort of not a single life form, but as this parasitic entity that constantly seeks to evolve and cling to the strongest host and use that to spread itself. Hmm. The idea that in the face of its defeat, it once again evolved and changed its tactics and moved from infecting individual organisms to now it's on this planet that has this life stream, this connective life tissue that runs throughout it evolving to infect that and persisting through not just one organism but like the souls of all as a new kind of disease i think that kind of works for genova Hmm. yeah I, i think it does i think it i think it totally does and like creating its own defense mechanisms to be like okay i will create new uh, you know, creations to go and try to, you know, cause a new reunion and spread my cells and then bring, consolidate this power to my will. And they're kind of stupid. Like, I'm just a presence in the soul force now, so I can't, I can't do this super well. Like, they're not going to be Sephiroth. Sephiroth was a working organism. I'm just making some idiot children out of a puddle. Mm-hmm. But you, they're going to try. And they're going to have some superpowers that makes them kind of dangerous to deal with. So we'll see how this goes. Like, yeah, okay, that's kind of interesting. And then its end goal is, I'm going to remake Sephiroth. And here's Sephiroth again. And the problem is, oh boy, does everyone just love Sephiroth. Yeah. Because Sephiroth's a cool sword man. Everything about this seems like they just wanted to have a cool Cloud versus Sephiroth fight and make it 10 minutes long and make it just the coolest thing in the world. Yeah. And like, to be fair, and again, this goes back to the farther we get from Final Fantasy VII, at least for a while. Certainly in this era, the more people sort of started to miss the point, I don't think they were really even reading the room wrong. Hmm. I think a lot of the fandom, at least a lot of the broad fandom, kind of sort of shared that feeling of, 
oh, Sephiroth is cool. What if Cloud and Sephiroth had like a sword fight, but it was modern CGI? Yeah, no, and this movie was at the time well received, based largely on that scene. Like a lot yeah. of people like point out how that scene was just super cool, right? But it doesn't make sense that Genova's plan is just to remake Sephiroth, revive Sephiroth, and that once he is revived, he's like, it's almost like he's back to normal. Mm. It's almost like he he acts more human than he did almost at any point in Final Fantasy VII. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that's... I think really the the thing with this is that we're attributing all these motives to to Genova, right? But really, this is this is Sephiroth's motives. Sephiroth right. is in control of Genova, so like this is this is actually Sephiroth's plan this entire time, right? Well, and I'm again, I'm coming at this from the perspective of Sephiroth and Genova are the same. Oh, okay, right, yeah. They are both hosts of the disease, and it's the disease's plan. So call it Genova, call it Sephiroth, they're effectively the same thing yeah. at this point. But again, that is my attribution, and yeah, if you take the read that, no, Sephiroth is still his own entity, and he's in control, then, yeah, this plan's really stupid i mean it makes sense that he'd want to be alive again mm -hmm. but also like i don't know what's your deal man <laughs> he wants to make a cool paradise on another planet he's going to use this planet to travel the cosmos That's i guess cool, right no yes <laughs> kind of like the Sephiroth at the end of FF7 didn't have any tangible motivation other than that of a monster. Mm -hmm. Like, he, he didn't talk. He didn't interact with anyone. He was just a dangerous force trying to wipe out all life and absorb the essence of the planet. Mm -hmm. he, he had fallen, whether he was himself, whether he was disease, the disease, whatever it was, he was... He had become this force of destruction. Hmm. Advent Children like revives him and he's just a dude again. And he's like taunting Cloud and it's like, why are you like this now? Yeah. Yeah, it's... it's they're going to do a lot of strange things with Sephiroth just all throughout these different pieces of media. Like... There's going to be something really bad that's going to happen in a last order that I really don't like with just how he interacts with Cloud. Because, like, yeah, like, mm -hmm. like I said, Final Fantasy VII, he honestly barely interacts with Cloud. Like, he'll monologue towards him and whatnot. Right. But, like, he, honestly, he could just be, he could be monologuing to, like, a frog or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like, like he'll basically just, like, occasionally hear something Cloud say and go, like, oh, yeah, no, that's just beneath me, like, whatever. Oh, you're sad this person died? Like, whatever, man. People die all the time. Anyways, I, <laughs> me and Mother are going to take all the energy. And it's like... Right. But yeah, here it's, like, actually much more personal. It's like, oh, hey, how's right. it going? But, like, not even a personal, like, oh, you defeated me last time, and I'm going to get my revenge. It's just more like, yeah. oh, hi, Cloud. How's it going? Oh, man. Yeah, that yeah, that's a cool outfit. I agree. Oh, I love your sword. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to give you despair. Yeah, I'm just going to do that. And so the thing is, like, if I recall correctly, and maybe I'm misremembering this too, but Sephiroth and Cloud did have some brief personal connection for Nibelheim when, before he went crazy. Mm. 
on the mission in Nibelheim, Cloud was there and they sort of had a bit of dialogue. Yeah, he was like, oh, hey, this is your hometown, right? It's like, it's like yeah, it is. Like, oh, yeah, you should probably go visit your mom. Like, okay, mm. that's basically yeah. about it. But, and so it's almost like it's hearkening back to that brief connection they had. Again, with Sephiroth acting more like his human self. Mm. But then it's like... Like what? What is? What exactly is Sephiroth supposed? What is the? Not even his motivation, because like he says, what his plan is. But what is the feeling behind Sephiroth's interaction with Cloud supposed to be? Yeah, no, I don't. I, I, I don't know. It seems like maybe he like sees him as almost an equal, but like not quite. Right. Or like a potential vessel that he could use. Like it, it just sort of. Well, it really sort of depends on like which piece of media we're using here, because like, yeah. like seven remake. I guess to get ahead of ourselves, he, mm. he's going to see Cloud as a way for him to accomplish his plans. Whereas, right. you know, here it's like he's almost treat him as an equal, somebody who like was able to fight him toe to toe, but he right. want, and so he wants to defeat versus like what's going to happen in last order where he finds him just intriguing in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It, it, it just changes depending on the writer and depending on what they're doing with the story at the time in a way that right. it makes it not really like gel together very well. Right. And it, I going back to the Sephiroth situation, I feel like that's sort of the core problem is the more media we get, the more unclear Sephiroth's actual existence and motivation and plan is. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And spoiler alert, it's not going to get any clearer. No. And like, there, I think there's a lot of factors to it. But again, I think a big factor is to a lot of people, including, I feel like, uh, Tetsuya Nomura, who directed Advent Children and is going to be a producer on a lot of these projects moving forward, Sephiroth is Cool Sword Villain Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we got to make sure Cool Sword Man Villain can do Cool Sword Man Villain things. Yeah. 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 Like, Nomura gets a lot of credit for a lot of the story elements of Final Fantasy VII mm. for being kind of like the sane person in the room, essentially, pulling things right. back in. Like, it should also be noted that uh, this movie was written by Kazushige Nojima, <laughs> mm, okay. uh, who was one of the main writers of Final Fantasy VII as well, and often right. would be the one bringing up some of the crazier ideas. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's I don't know how much to attribute this to Nomura or versus mm-hmm. Nojima, but it no more is the person who does kind of oversee this entire thing. So yeah, yeah, there's there is definitely they definitely try to get crazier and crazier as time goes on. Right. If if there was to be a plan with Sephiroth, I would expect one of those two to have it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. One of them are going to have it, and it's probably going to be nuts. Yep. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah, that's that's Final Fantasy VII Avid Children. Once again, very well received when it came out, but ultimately, uh, <laughs> yeah, something that maybe has not exactly aged the best. So no. 
So we're sitting at roughly about the two hour mark. So I'm going to make the executive decision and say we're going to talk about Last Order next time. Now, it's not because Last Order necessarily takes a ton of time to explain. Really, I'm only going to be describing maybe like it in five minutes and then be like, mm -hmm. look at this stupid thing they did. But that stupid yeah. thing does lead into Crisis Core. And since we're going to be talking about that next time, it seems like maybe it'd be best to start off with that and just kind of lead in from there. That makes sense. Yeah. So next time we're going to be talking about that. Jump into Crisis Core. Talk very, very, very briefly about Before Crisis, the game with all the Turks, including the ones <laughs> that are literally labeled stuff like Gun Turk and Blade yep. Turk, before finally finishing up with Dirge of Cerberus, a game that is incredibly oh, profiled. Boy. But yeah, Alex, do you have any final thoughts before we go? Honestly, it really says it all. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Um... <laughs> I think the only thing I, the only final thought I have is you asked me, how do I feel about uh, Cloud's sword that is seven swords that fold into one sword and then launch back into seven swords for his Omni Slash attack? And the answer is, I think it's stupid and makes no sense, but I love it. Yeah, we never really talked about the sword this time around. Uh, Cloud's, Cloud doesn't have the Buster Sword anymore. He has a Buster-like yep. sword that splits out into seven other swords. And yeah, it's very stupid, but very cool. It's, kind of, it's very cool. It sort of represents the whole movie. Yeah. The movie is a collection of a bunch of like cool but dumb ideas. Eric's yeah. dumb Gatling arm with four other Gatling arms. Yeah. Yeah. It's they, they when they go for it, they go for it. I'll give them credit on that. But yeah, I think that's going to do it for us today. Uh, thanks for joining us and uh, thanks for, of course, hopping on with me to do this, Alex. I do appreciate it. And for you, the listener, if you want to see or hear more episodes of Fallen Through Plot Holes, you should type in ftp.podbean.com or search through Fallen, for, for the Fallen Through Plot Holes on your podcast service of choice. Of course, you know, you know leave reviews, leave the likes, help out with that SEO. We do appreciate that. But with that, we're going to go ahead and sign off, everybody, and we'll talk about the rest of this next week. Take care, y'all. Take care.